This is Coda Radio, episode 254 for April 24th, 2017. everyone, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Scale Your Code. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and in the midst of a MacBook yard sale out on his lawn, perched and ready for action, it's our host, Mr. Michael Dominic. Hello, Mike! Welcome to the factor. <laughs> the no spin zone starts here because it's got to go somewhere. Actually, he's, he's he can't take it. Sorry, Mike. He's going into podcasting, so you can't take it. Is he really? Yeah, he's starting a podcast. He, actually, he's restarting a podcast. That's amazing. Let it be a call-in show. <laughs> yeah, well, then he's gonna no have to... producer, no screener. <laughs> You're gonna have to deal with a few calls, Mr. Dominic. Super fired up about today's show. We got a great show. Uh, you on the front yard of the lawn, me here in the JB1 studio, and Uber all over the world making mistakes. Ooh. Plus, we Ooh. have uh, some Angular talk to get into. We got a little uh, focus and gear talk towards the end, and a really cool tool of the week. I like all of it. Plus, this whole topic of the blue collar job. That uh, we're going to get into yeah, here. Yeah, super popular in the subreddit. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's just start with like the there's like hoopla that's happening right now. We'll just start with that because I think this Uber story is pretty relevant, fascinating, and interesting and deep. I I'm going to be honest. I don't really follow all of the all of the recent stuff going around with Uber. I know that they've been in a lot of controversy lately. Well, how could you? It's well, a to a degree, it almost it has almost felt targeted. It's almost felt like Uber is under like a sustained anti PR campaign, and by by and by by doing so, they're just exposing a bunch of really dirty, dirty secrets. But this one, this one seems particularly close to flying, to, or seems like they fly way too close to the sun on this particular one because they just about had their knees taken out from underneath them by Apple, and that that started then we, when we start talking like major key, key, cornerstone iOS store application, one of the big disruptors of that's on mobile uh, being kicked out, that that kind of got my attention. That was, yeah. whoa. And the fact that this this whole thing went up to Tim Cook level, it went to CEO, CEO, CEO level, all of it's interesting. Where do you, I mean, where do you should, want to start with this? Well, I mean, we should probably say what happens, but it, the end result was like uh, Kalanak, Travis Kalanak, the CEO of Uber, got a personal dressing down from Tim Cook. Like, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. So it seems to me that what happened was is through a combination of exploiting private APIs, uh, some clever math that they were doing, they were tracking users between installations and even formatting of devices. They claimed they started doing this as sort of a fraud prevention when they launched in China, that they had people that were – their accounts were getting shut down, so then people would just go create new accounts. And so they needed a way to mm-hmm. to detect this. And so what they figured out was, as well, there's this private private API we can use, this iOS kit API that we can use that will eventually, will, will eventually get the serial number of the iPhone. And then we can do this little hash based on the serial number, and then we'll know 
then we'll then we'll associate that with the user's account. And then we'll know if we ever see that same hash again that they're on the same device, even if it's a different user account. Yeah. So 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 there's a couple things here, right? Um, back in the bad old days, you used to actually just be able to get the iPhone's UUID, um, which stands for unique um, ID. You decide, unique, you, unique. Oh, what does it stand? I used to know. It's basically a GUID, right? It's the unique device identifier. Yes. Yep. Um, and then there was a different API when they deprecated that and told people you had to stop using it, uh, where you would get like a generated UUID for that install of that device. And that started that, in iOS nine, format. right? Is that right? That was no. They or is that ten? Uh, iOS. Seven, dude. Oh, this is a long oh, time. Oh, okay. This has been against the rules. In fact, we covered it on one of the very early shows, yeah, and that yeah. was almost three years ago now. I mean, we're going on four hundred years, I think. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, and I remember that was a big deal for a couple of my customers because we were doing some stuff in the telephony sp- space at the time, and we had a bunch of like iOS five code that totally used the uh, the original UUIDs that all had to be rewritten, rewritten or else. Then you had these, let's call them marketing UID, UUIDs. The idea was that you could track users to target them for marketing needs or just to know, you know how many devices they have for whatever reason. There are ways to still do that, but not, not to the level where Uber was doing, right? Uber didn't just want to track you know, this install of the Uber app on your phone. They wanted to track your phone as a unique device. Right. For presumably fraud reasons, but I and you I, have to wonder they must be doing this on Android too. Well, well, on Android you do whatever the hell you want. Right? Yeah. Um, the thing that is a little creepy here: one, this is like one of those big caps and bold. You can't do this. Things, there's, there's right? also before you go much further. There's an interesting twist: is they uh, they geolocated, they geofenced mm-hmm. Apple HQ in Cupertino. Yeah. And so they they didn't use this API and they did not generate this unique identifier if the iPhone was on the Apple campus to avoid things, App Review. Well, one of the things App Review does now is they have automated scripts that run and actually test if you're using private APIs, right? Because yeah. it it's not that the API doesn't exist anymore. It's for it's Apple only. <laughs> it's for Apple only, which, you know, we're saying that laughing, but actually, you know what? There are private APIs for a reason. Right? Yeah, but this also demonstrates that when you do this, there's people that will come up with ways around it if it's something valuable. Geofencing yeah. to try to block app review, it's cute. It it also sort of forgot the fact that Apple is a worldwide company. Yeah. Right. And, and, <laughs> and like somebody is going to notice and get really upset. One of the creepier aspects of this is, did you hear about the hell tool that they built? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, roughly, uh, my understanding was it's like a way to like uh, track certain users and like law enforcement. Is this right? Is that the same tool? Because they have a tool to do um, that. It was to track folks who were driving for Lyft. Oh, oh, oh no! I guess mistaken. I didn't know this. Or or there are two tools. There is a law enforcement one, but the one I'm thinking of, which I believe was called Hell, is to track uh, journalists they don't like. Oh yeah, it was Grayball that they used to trick law enforcement, right? Yeah, Grayball is the one for, for um, I think, avoiding the sanctions in New York at the time or whatever. Um, is it? See, it seems to me that it would be possible if I could track a unique identifier on the phone to like know who has left install and maybe kind of be a jerk and not funnel customers to them, right? Did, now, what also is creepy, just that, along that line of thinking, of course, is that what also was exposed is that Uber hired the services of unenroll.me, which a lot of people use. They associate it with their Gmail inbox or their inbox, and unenroll.me is a bulk 
unsubscription service. So, you know, if you get spam or something like that, you, you hate these. You, you, can, you can just sit there and unsubscribe all day long. Or, thank goodness, this free unenroll.me service comes along. Phew, finally, something to automate this. Yeah, take it. Give access to my inbox. Have at it. And then it scans your inbox. It finds all these uh, all these emails that uh, it can unsubscribe from automatically, and it lets you bulk unsubscribe. It does do that functionality. What it also does is keep a copy of all the emails you receive since you signed up. Now, this is according to somebody who worked with the company. It stores them in, a, in an S3 bucket, and then it categorizes them. And companies like Uber come along, and they say to unenroll.me, show me all of the users that got an, an email receipt from Lyft, where they got an yeah. email receipt in their inbox. Now, unenroll.me says we randomized the IDs, so there's, there's no way for Uber to know who these users are. But Uber was also able to figure out who's track, who's installing Uber across the entire phone we wipe. So they obviously are correlating data. It would not surprise me if they were using data from companies like unenroll.me. Now unenroll.me is caught up in a, in a controversy and they say they're heartbroken. They're heartbroken that their users didn't understand how we were using their data. We're heartbroken that they thought we were an unenroll service. Heartbroken. Heartbroken. This is a little weird, right? This whole thing. I mean, one, you know, most developers wouldn't get a private meeting with Tim Cook and not, you know, immediately thrown off the app store, right? Yeah, we got to wonder. He's probably walking in there like, so first of all, how did how did Apple know like all of this stuff? How did they find this? Did somebody tell them? Like there are some serious questions here because of this guy. This what was I'm sorry, what was the Uber CEO? Cala, what was it? Uh Kalamak. Kalamak. Kalanak, yep. That's that's kind of ironic, Kalanak. He's got a knack for getting in trouble is what he's got. Uh, anyways, <laughs> he, he, there's, there are a few weird questions I have. Uh, so did he know going in that he was about to get a dressing down or does he think like maybe there's some big deal coming? Like he and Apple are about to land some sort of big deal. When it, when, what exactly did Uber know and what did Apple know? Was well, we Apple know. aware I mean, that Uber was keeping a database of unique iPhones at this point? What prompted Apple to look into it in the first place? That's another question. Why did they look into this? And then this guy sits down. He thinks he's about to have a meeting with Tim Cook about maybe integrating Uber at the at the share screen. And Tim Cook says to him, so I hear you've been breaking some of our rules. And then he threatens to kick him out of the app store over this. Which means effectively shutting down his company, right? <laughs> like that would be saying goodnight. I mean, I guess they could do a progressive web app. Um, but for something so consumer-facing... That seems challenging. Then I have another question. Why did none of this come out? This is some of this is from back like in 2014 and, and, and forward. None of this came out until the well, Uber CEO was like a profile was being done by the New York Times. Why I, didn't I Apple think, say something? Well, I see Uber has been getting a lot of bad press, right? For various sexual harassment and day after weird, day, which almost makes which, which does make me so. One of the things I've definitely noticed is when there's a story that stays in the news on a, either a daily or weekly basis, there's usually a company behind putting that story out there. So that there's a possibility that there's some sort of marketing company that's running sustained uh, a sustained campaign against Uber using their own dirty secrets. I mean, it's totally legit. It's a, it is an actual business practice because there has just been story after story, week after week now. And this is from 2014, and it's just now being exposed. It doesn't really you know, matter, it, though. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, what does matter – I see, I actually see this as a positive story in a weird way for iPhone users and for developers. One, it is, of course, mildly annoying that big developers get a break, right? 
But it's also nice to know that the break doesn't include just a free pass. It you do have to like modify your behavior. Um, you you can't just do it and get away with it because you're Uber, right? Well, apparently they did. Well, no, but they're not. You can't continue to do it. I don't know. Point. I think I I don't think it trickles down. So uh, when I travel, I end up using okay. Uber a lot because, in fact, I've even kind of shied away from admitting this on air because they're so controversial these days. Uh, but the reality is I'm in a 40-foot RV and I get somewhere. I'm not going to drive that thing around downtown. Right. And right. when you go to like Austin or when you go to San Francisco, by by probably a, by probably like a $10 margin, Uber is cheaper than paying for parking. I can I can Uber for $6 and I can park for 16 I mean, those fares are also like heavily subsidized, right? I mean, there, there is an issue that one day Uber needs to raise its prices. I mean, I think, yeah, there's uh, that. But my point is, is that talking to the Uber drivers and and seeing how busy it is down there, and seeing how many new people are signing up to become an Uber driver, uh, I just don't, I don't think it's filtering down to the. I don't think the average people care that much either, because it's it, it, to them, it's it's really the relationships with the driver. It's not with Uber, the company that pays the driver. So it doesn't really matter to them. And the average the average Uber rider isn't trying to scam Uber. So they probably don't care if Uber's tracking across installs. So you don't think that this is an issue that actual users are going to care about? So you, would your position to Well, I think a category be, of users, like those of us who, who check Hacker News and those of us who talk, talk about it, we care. And okay. I think it's definitely interesting to talk about from like a business side and a software development side because – there is there. There's a couple of really interesting stories here. You just touched on the bias story. If this was if this was Michael Dominic's company that was doing this, you would just be out of the app store. You, well, you would just get a you get a form email, yeah. right? Yeah, and then you're lucky your if you get a phone call. Down. You're lucky if you got a you're stern gonna, phone call. You, yeah, you might get a stern talking to, yeah. and and your right. account. Instead, this is CEO to CEO level meeting that happens, and then it's kept. Everybody keeps it hush hush. Nobody gets in trouble. Uh, so there's obvi- there's an obvious bias angle here. There's a privacy aspect to this. There's this whole private APIs discussion on iOS again. There's the well, tracking there's aspect. The, the fact that Uber might actually have a legitimate – there is a legitimate issue here about trying to prevent fraud. Fall. And there is limited ways to do it, especially on iOS. See, so I think there's actually a couple takes here in addition to that, right? There's the take of when you're working this proprietary walled gardens – one way to stand out or give yourself an advantage is to push the boundaries, right? And this is not necessarily me endorsing this, but there is a very logical argument one could make that says, okay, they have to stop doing it, but how many years do they get to do it? And how much data did they collect? And what advantages did that give them? And what about the Chinese market where maybe they're not updating as frequently over there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if the infrastructure is in place, there could be Uber drivers over in China <laughs> that are still driving with that and users. I mean, who knows? And again, well, like I say, and we don't know what, what the Android doing with the data. And we right? don't know so, what's happening on Android. I, it's probably true that the data is valuable within itself. So the fraud issue aside, it, it, it does seem like if I was Uber, you know, if I was Kalanick, I might want to use this data to make my operations more efficient. Yeah, right? yeah, but there are other um, ways to get metrics. Like you can get iOS version and screen size without having to be creepy. See, I think we're talking about traffic patterns and user behavior. I think we're talking about real, like um, losing a user like, and then they come back, kind of data. Like they resign like up. Real big data where you're putting it into some sort of algorithm and finding out like what actions do you take 
or what you know acts of god storms things like that i have i have deleted the uber app off my phone and then reinstalled it so you know that would be a, i think that's actually an interesting metric yeah, I mean, but that's a pretty basic metric, right? You you could find that out just by assigning the the install session a a, a quit on your own server, mm. and when it doesn't ping for a month, say that that user is inactive. That's probably how some people do it. Which is the kosher way to do this, by the way. That is the ex- acceptable, non-violating way. Because if the person were to delete it and then reinstall it, they would get a new new quit, right? They get a new UUID because it's just your system generating the UUID. Or you could tie it to user accounts, and then you don't care about the devices. But I have a feeling they actually care about the devices, right? Because there's probably something different about someone who has it installed on more than one device. And I'm just this is conjecture about what the data might be. My larger point is maybe there's an argument that says bend the rules. Because mm-hmm. um, if you're if you're lockstep with the rules in these proprietary markets. There's nothing you're doing that your competitors can't, assuming they're not, you know, in some way capital constrained, right? But here's the other thing. When you're using Uber, it's it's tied to your credit card. It's tied to your name. They have if it is way more uh, identifying just using the Uber app than it is to pay a cab in cash. Because Uber is tracking your location at the moment you request the ride. Uber tracks your location during the ride. Uber tracks your location after you close the app in the background for a bit. They track they they track law enforcement. They track themselves, but also you have a user account with a credit card on file. It's there's there is zero expectation of privacy when using Uber. And even if you don't understand background tracking, you understand that your credit card is on file. So if there if it's it's I think people have a very low expectation of privacy on Facebook and people have a very low expectation of privacy on Uber and anything else where they have to put their address and their name and their credit card in. So I thought I so I I actually kind of tend to agree with you. Well, let's experiment with let's experiment with tracking across installs because that does actually seem to be a semi-valuable data point. It does seem like a legitimate way to also prevent fraudulent Uber driver accounts, which would be not only good for the business, but protecting riders. Could even be a safety issue. You got to do it somehow. And it's probably something that that's you can do on Android, either implicitly or explicitly. So iOS has to come to some sort of resolution on this. And the only way to figure it out is probably a company like Uber... It might be better than a smaller company that you don't really know what they're going to do with the data, what safeguards they have in place, what policies they have. If there's a lawyer's office, you can call and say, all right, now you've got to stop. The fact that you can have a CEO to CEO level meeting, somebody's got to push the boundary. The way Apple works, it can't be it can't be a, 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 a tiny shop. It's got to be a big company that uh, probably has some leverage in the conversation. They legitimately add value to the Apple iOS platform. If, if you don't fall into that category, and there's probably only about 10 or 15, 30 developers that do, then you don't have a lot of leverage. So it takes somebody that has leverage. It takes somebody that has a reason. It takes somebody that has a data policy. It takes somebody that has a business around it. So I kind of tend to agree with you, even though on its face it's abhorrent and it fits into an awful narrative about Uber right now. But it's isolated out on its own. It almost seems like it could have some legitimate uses. And somebody's got to break the rules to try it, right? 
I think it's fair. I mean, we should probably move on from this. Um, okay. But like one one tiny point too is, you know, Uber is behaving like a lot of valley startups, move fast and break things, uh, very little regard for the rules. But the problem is they're actually like a really yeah. big company now. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> so yeah. people are starting to. Um, the geo and the geo fencing to try to get around Apple and that kind of shit. That's that's where it starts to get a little dicey for me. Well, it's almost like if you were to become president, right? At some point, you have to. You're expected to behave like a gentleman, not a frat boy. And Uber obviously is having lots of problems in that department. Well, it's those cabs. We got to blame those cabbies. It's got to be that's what it is. You know, before we move on, actually, we have a lot. Let's get into some angular talk, but let's start by talking about DigitalOcean, our first sponsor this week. Go to digitalocean.com, create an account, and then apply our promo code once you've created the account. It's coder digital, one word. It'll give you a $10 credit, and that actually gets you quite a bit of mileage up on DigitalOcean. $5 a month for the starting rig. That's not bad. 512 megs of RAM, single core, a terabyte of transfer, 20 gigabytes of SSD storage, and you get their awesome, beautiful UI. You get all of the applications you could deploy on any of the rigs. You can add block storage if you want more. I love this. So you could start with a, with a $5 a month machine and then attach highly available, scalable SSD block storage to your droplet as you need it. Just keep on adding it in there. <laughs> it's so cool. They've got monitoring to alert you when something's wrong or if performance isn't up to snuff. All integrated in. You look like a boss. One or a hundred. You look like a boss. DigitalOcean.com. Sign up. Use our promo code, Coder Digital, one word, and you get a $10 credit. The other thing I really like about DigitalOcean, obviously SSDs throughout. I love that. Use KVM and Linux for the infrastructure. Data centers all over the world. 40 gigabit e-connections into the hypervisor. Pre-built open source applications ready to go to get work done. You're working on Docker, Docker, Node.js, Rails. You want to do some MongoDB stuff, some Redis, some Cassandra. They got all pre-built images ready to go with legit sources either from the project or from the distro repo, whatever the industry practice. They got the GPG keys you might need to update Docker. It's built on top of an LTS Linux base. You can also use rigs hourly. So for three cents an hour, two gigs of RAM, a two-core processor, 40 gigabytes of SSD, and three terabytes of transfer for three cents an hour. (laughs) And just keep it running or, you know, just try something out for a little bit and then shut it down or run it for immediate infrastructure. Our buddy Alan over at Scale Engine, they had a huge sporting event across the pond. This is one of the frequent things of Scale Engine. You know, just tens and tens of thousands of people watching they can take advantage of DigitalOcean using their API and spin up additional infrastructure as they need it all around the world. <laughs> oh, man, it really is the future. DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code CODERDIGITAL. Apply it to your account, get a $10 credit, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Angular 4.0 is out. The Invisible Makeover? That doesn't sound uh, particularly... All that uh, upsetting. It sounds nice, well-paced. What do we think, Mike? Well, I actually had an opportunity to try something with it. That's why we're taking a look at it now. Love it. Um, Love it. It's a good improvement, right? It goes up to TypeScript 2.2, which I think is going to be one of the more popular features. Mm. I know folks are Mm -hmm. pretty – you know how they feel about TypeScript. Um, animations, which are a pain in the ass, are now moved into their own package. Theoretically, actually not theoretically, totally in practice. It makes your Angular application smaller for those who care about that. View Engine is faster and generates less code. I tried to dig into this a little bit. The basic argument seems to be because it generates less code, it is therefore faster. So okay. less clock, right? Sure, yeah. 
they did put out some benchmarks. Yeah, right. I mean, we could put out benchmarks that say a MacBook lasts 20 hours. It says they reduced the size of code generated by around 60% in most cases. Yeah. I did some trivial tests. It it definitely is faster than Angular 1 um, for sure and then Angular 2. I don't know that it's... I, w- I wouldn't bid it, uh, bill it as the top feature, I guess is what I'm saying, right? Like yeah. we're not talking... Yeah, native performance here still. But I we like are, you know. Yeah. I, I like though that it's it's a step in the right direction. Also, the 1980s computer user in me likes the pulling the animations out of core and into their own package. So if you don't use animations, the extra code doesn't end up in your production bundles. Which that I really appreciate. Just a small thing, but my the 1980s yeah, again, computer user in me that had to run off floppy disks really appreciates that. Yeah, I, you know, for the actual more. Uh, Two more interesting things I think are the improvements and additions to the NJ if. So that's, you know, the if checking in your templates and NJ4 obviously looping in your templates. There are small changes like there's an else now. Yay. But I think they're going to clean up a lot of spaghetti code for a lot of people. Hmm. Um, I know a pretty common complaint I hear from people about Angular is that it tends to be a little less elegant looking than say react the other interesting thing is they've been pushing angular now as one framework for all your clients so you would actually just ship like a angular uh application like a progressive web app for for all screen sizes um going a little more along again along the lines for react or actually this other project i've been looking at google polymer that's super interesting, right? Because that, that, that says that they're, they're actually skating to where the puck, I think, in three years is going, that most of these applications are going to be PWAs. I don't know. You know, it's weird because I prefer Angular over React, but I'm not super excited for Angular 4. Hmm. It's, it's a project that is really useful, but also almost moving too fast for me. For instance, we just started deploying Angular 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh-huh. So it, it, it is, it's another s- sign of this kind of JavaScript churn, right? Mm. How quickly the JavaScript frameworks are moving. Mm. Having said that, it, it doesn't seem like awful. Like one thing I'm considering is what would the migration story look like for a pretty large-scale Angular 2 application to go to Angular 4? I don't know. I haven't tried it. I'm considering maybe taking a look at it over the weekend. Hmm. Um, and I'm also, so there's a lot going on here, right? Because there is an element, I feel, of keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, just looking at conversations, I'm having people, RFPs, things like that. React just seems to be kicking the shit out of them. Like, it's pretty bad. Um, I'm not sure how React got so much mindshare. In such a relatively short amount of time, but they definitely have. Somebody so should do it. a case study and then apply it to their own project. Oh, that sounds like a lot of work. So this is an interesting little update from uh, the Stanford CS department. A little, a little twist in the Java story over at Stanford. 
Yeah, so they're uh, they're dropping Java for their introductory course and going to JavaScript. What, Mike? What? I know, and and we put this one in special for all the folks who email us asking where to start. Apparently, huh. it's not Java anymore. You know, I kind of agree. Uh, I this kind of makes just what's so much. It's not that, nothing against Java at all, but Jesus, look at JavaScript. I mean, talk about a really employable, applicable skill to learn. Yeah, but that's that the whole damn world runs in JavaScript. Everything. Yeah, but every five years it changes. I mean, I, uh, I don't know, man. I think JavaScript JavaScript's past that five year mark and it's still around. And you know, I we're getting that. to the point now where. Uh, it's it's being used in massive, massive enterprise applications and management systems and control panels and that kind of stuff. Once it's around, it becomes like the VB of the world. It can really stick. I think it's becoming pretty, pretty well entrenched. It's not going anywhere. Not the job really See, is either, but I think it makes vocation, sense. From a vocational perspective, I totally agree with you, right? Like it, it just makes sense. But Java, learning Java teaches you like classical O design and architecture. There are tons of Java jobs out there. Well, what do you so. think about a lot of the a lot of other schools, uh, CS departments are moving to Python from Java. What do you think of that? Python. In fact, I just heard a commercial on the radio here in Seattle yesterday for Python courses. I actually, so it's weird, right? I think JavaScript's a little more practical. Um, but Python's a little more stable. I mean, one of I mean, somebody in the chat just put JavaScript, a new framework to learn every month. <laughs> Keeps that's, everybody employed in the education industry. Yay! Right, that's kind of <laughs> right. I mean, I understand that, like, you know, a school is going to teach the language, not a framework. But it does seem, particularly with things like TypeScript really starting to gain traction, it does seem like it's a little unstable as, like, your foundational learning. Well, Java is still king. Java, Java. There was a recent survey by SCSE members, and okay. they put together their data online as part of an educational survey. Python appeared sixty times in the survey. C plus plus fifty four, JavaScript twenty eight, and Java eighty four times. So Java is still king. Java, so don't worry. Well, there's you know there are enterprise applications with hundreds of thousands of or millions of mm-hmm. lines of Java mm-hmm. code yeah, yeah. that no one's rewriting. Don't fret, don't fret. It's it's still alive and, and well and and still the king. But uh, I could I mean if you're just looking for employment, it's, if you're looking for employment, there's there is something to it. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, like. you know, if you're looking to work in the mines every day, maybe JavaScript is the way to go. The new blue collar work is coding, according to Mark Zuckerberg, uh, and I could see it. I honestly could, you know, when you when when you see hour of code and we're going to teach everybody to code and you have Swift playgrounds on on the iPad and I could see it, you know, if you make coding as easy as HyperCard, uh, yeah. Wow, dig deep. <laughs> yeah, I could see it. I really could because it's because what what do you what it really comes down to is what do you define as programming and developing? Can arranging systems and components be a form of development? Because if it is, I think it could be. I could see I could see lower skilled workers that are just connecting containers and connecting APIs, putting stuff together, and and doing you know dark matter type development at a desk somewhere. I could definitely. Well, see I can even though. see uh, like business folks, right? Uh, you know, accountants working in Excel. Many of them, especially particularly younger ones, the, an advantage they have is they know how to write their own macros, right? Um, yeah, if you consider so, like it, macro development or something as complex as macro development, maybe it's a different type of thing because it's through online services. But 
Yeah, that that would, I think, be blue-collar development, wouldn't it? Or even, like, simple scripting for a lead page or, you know, a CRM or something like that. I mean, if you're a salesman using Salesforce and you can ju- do just some relatively conceptual design, you can actually get pretty far with their lightning tool, right? Um, you know, off the top of my head, I could think of, like, four or five packages that enterprises use that even a basic knowledge of just like the fundamentals of, of programming, not even like a language in particular, you could probably automate some of the tedious aspects of your job away by, by scripting it out. Or uh, connecting uh, if this and that to the Amazon Echo. Yeah, IFTT. <laughs> and that, you know what, that, that, is, that is a form of development, right? It's not... Actually, you know, so I can actually say this now. I saw a confidential product at Dell that it was announced today that uh, it is for businesses and it, is, it allows you to... to to basically create your own local Internet of Things, so you you don't have to go out to like public okay. services and APIs. There's like a Dell system running on Ubuntu that runs on the edge of your network, and you have like sensors at a machine, and you or a, a, you have a, a a servo at a door or a, a valve, and they're all you have these things all over your business or your 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 warehouse or whatever it is, and they all provide data back to this to this little central thing, and. The, the whole the whole idea is is that what they're what they're trying to solve is this problem where there is a lot of little automated processes that happen but to get them to happen it's all these in, different systems and so they built this whole thing and then and then sort of as a stretch project at the end of it they said you know what we ought to try doing is now simplifying it even further and putting a, the echo in front of that so they put an echo dot and so they have a little test case where you can turn on a valve or stop and start a machine and the workers can do it all by just barking at the echo Right, and they 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 go from having to be specialized trained in like these three different systems to just barking at the echo, and now they just connect the pieces. So they they bring in this sensor into the IoT gateway, and then they connect that IoT gateway's uh, API to the to the echo, and they're done. And so they're not doing any development, but they're just bringing so three pieces together and plugging them in, and done. it's basically an internalized IoT network. Is yes. what it sounds like. Yeah, and that's they really they connect the components. And that's their level that's of development. They don't develop the individual components. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They're now, it was announced. It was announced through the Linux Foundation today. <clears throat> oh so. my God, Dell is just like, hey, Tux, how you doing? Yeah, they really are. Yeah, they're just they're straight up Bill they, O'Reilly. Dell didn't even Dell didn't even want to run the announcement themselves because they wanted it because they're they're doing it as an open source thing. So they yeah they they worked with the Linux Foundation. Like twenty two other companies are all in on this. And they're well, going I mean, after, like, the more, like, manufacturing enterprise stuff. Makes sense. Stuff yeah. we could all I mean, just on a much less impressive level, you know, I'm still using BotKit to work on my Gretel bot, right, to harass people in Slack and get them to fill out Harvest and stuff like that. Um, I'm hoping to have another release soon. But just that kind of admin work, now that more and more organizations are going distributed and working in things like Slack or HipChat... I can see a lot of those kind of admin, you know, assistant type jobs going away and just being custom written bots or off the shelf bots modified. Yeah. Yeah, the times the times are changing because if you can have so we have we have little things that that will uh when we make a like if we make a need to make a calendar change on the live schedule, when we make the change, it'll go into a room in Slack and then we can have somebody verify the change at that point. You can look in that room in the morning and see what shows are going to be live that day where then you can, you know, flag something for a change. Like it's a pretty cool little system 
that might have been something that a human did at some point in the past, but now it's just a room in a channel. I mean, it's just a, it's just a bot in a channel. And if you have more discipline than me and can avoid the temptation to rewrite it in TypeScript, it'll save a lot of time. <laughs> ScaleYourCode.com. Go to ScaleYourCode.com and sign up. It's a nice, clean, low-flow mailing list, two to three emails a month probably at max, where you get access to interviews and how-tos and inside looks with real industry experts, people that have done this stuff. They've tried it. Maybe they've had a few mistakes they've learned from. They've built teams. They've had to scale their infrastructure in fact, I was looking – speaking of JavaScript, I was looking at this one, JavaScript and its role in artificial intelligence, AR, and VR. It's from Eric Elliott, the author of Programming JavaScript Applications for O'Reilly. And of course, he's contributed to – he's worked for Adobe. He's contributed to Zumba, the fitness app, the Wall Street Journal, BBC. He's uh, worked with music artists online. And uh, he lives in the San Francisco area down there doing things. And uh, I'll tell you what. I have to imagine after our JavaScript conversation and talking about the future of JavaScript and where it's going, when you get into AR and VR, if, if JavaScript has already got uh, a beachhead there, <laughs> it's definitely going to be around for a while. So you can find that interview and many, many, many more at scaleyourcode.com. Go there, you sign up, you get access, and then you're in. You're in like Flynn. You get access to not just those, but a bunch of great interviews from folks like Basecamp, uh, founder of Ruby on Rails, folks and engineers at Google. It's an incredible value, and there's more getting added. ScaleYourCode.com. You go there. You sign up. It's easy peasy. Of course, and you could always unsubscribe anytime if you'd like. You get access not just to the interviews but tutorials and blog posts as well. ScaleYourCode.com. And a big thank you to ScaleYourCode for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Now, why is Mike out on his lawn this week? Why is he out in a yard on a yard sale doing this on his front yard? Well, Mike's looking to sell a MacBook. What? Lightly actually, used MacBook. Actually, Mike's selling a bunch of Macs. Uh, oh, is this not the new one? No, it is. It's oh, all of them. oh, 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 <laughs> it's all of them. All of the Macs. Hey, Noah, it's all the Macs. Noah's going to love that. Uh, wow. Wow. And the LG monitor, too, right? Yep. And the LG. Yep. Did you um, did you have like an episode or something? And then you just woke up and were like, Oh, God, what did I do? I mean, like, what just happened? Because last week we were talking about how it's a tool that you're getting some work done. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of understand, man. I kind of see where you're coming from. I kind of understand now. And now this week. <laughs> well, so a couple things. Whiplash. Mm-hmm. Time Let's travel. See. Something happened. What, what was it? I decided to climb this mountain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Because it was there? <laughs> There was this burning bush, and in the bush was a face. He looked at me, and he said, my son, it's negative in the freedom dimension. Yeah. And then I was struck down. His brain is gone. (laughs) So I spent the weekend, one, celebrating a birthday for my son, whoop, one-year-old. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. And two, thinking a lot about, you know, my business and and where things are going and realizing that the future, I think, and I wrote a post about this on DominicM.com called, I forgot, but it's the most recent one, is is not going to be in native app development for me. Ah. Ah, so would, and so it's would you say 
So would you say the tools for doing your development work on Ubuntu are sufficient? Would you say they're better than they were on the Mac? Um, would you say they're a compromise? How would you classify like the like the because you, you are making a commitment now to a totally different tool set and chain? And GNOME, but that's a whole other thing. Oh yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. You know, I'm. I would say for the last two years since 2015, I think I've been struggling with a lack of focus. Um, I haven't shipped a lot of first-party stuff. I've done a lot of different projects and like different technologies. Like I did a few WPF projects. I did a uh, universal platform Windows project, a Android project. I mean, a, couple, a bunch of Android jobs, a lot of Rails, a lot of Docker. And that has kind of a tremendous overhead where I got to the point where basically our position and my position was we'll do anything for anybody for any reason. And that's not really true, right? And it's less about the technology stacks and more about what I want to be doing is providing solutions for companies to modernize their legacy systems or to write them new systems, um, you know, that leverage containerization, assuming they're on Linux, which most of them are, to kind of, you know, ease their DevOps journey, right? The idea is, I mean, we're not going to get into, we can have a DevOps conversation in another week, but the idea is that that is the thing I want to be focusing on. And there's some obvious reasons for that. One, businesses tend to be better customers than people. Mm-hmm. And I've actively avoided people as customers, right, individuals. Um, I did start doing a little bit of advertising towards iOS development in the last two months. And I ended up turning down um, a couple uh, contracts because it was the, you know, the the kind of, and, and I mean this in a non-derogatory way, but the kind of wannabe app entrepreneur thing, right? Um, one one fellow said he was going to be opening up his 401k to do it, and I said, absolutely not. Huh, yeah, okay. Right. So this is not the kind of client base you want. It's not the kind of client you want. You know what? Those people are really risking their lives on this stuff. And unfortunately, it is my belief that the app market is so saturated that an individual, you know, let's say they're ripping open their 401k and spending twenty, fifty, with thousand dollars, whatever. It's just not going to be able to do it, right? I mean, there may be, you know, of course. It, in fact, the analogy I used with him on the phone was, you know, there, there, Derek Jeter exists, right? I mean, he just retired two years ago, but <laughs> Derek Jeter does exist. But the tens of thousands of other kids who want to be shortstop for the Yankees, uh-huh, yeah, end up being sales guys at Carlots, right? You, you, you just don't. Most people lose, right? Like, and, and it's not like that 50% lose, it's that like 0.00001% don't lose. You think you think it's about setting realistic expectations for yourself I, and goals? I think everything is about expectations, right? And I think hmm. the app market is at the point where it's not realistic. Even for me, right? Even, you know, for me who's someone who doesn't have the cost of hiring someone else to do it. So you, you sell a lot of false hope and you burn through that pretty quickly because then they run out of money and so it's a high, it's a high burn rate, It's it, there's, a, there's a bad feeling to it. Yeah, yeah, you know, you don't want to be in the business of selling people things that don't work. And and I haven't, right? I haven't yeah. really sold that product. I definitely noticed when I was in now. the IT contracting and consulting business that very, 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 very first thing I did was get out of homes. No way. Much right. better it's, with working with business. Too hard. And the reality is containerization, Docker, line of business web applications, all as a package. You know what? Businesses need these things, right? They have compliance issues. 
they have existing systems that their employees are using. Um, maybe they're, oh, I don't know, running on Rails 2 and they need to be upgraded to Rails 5. Not that that's something I'm really doing. This is all, I mean, this is all resonating good with me, Mike. I mean, I'm I'm on board. I'm following you. I'm thinking this is sounding like some good realizations here. What's, uh, what's not clicking for me, though, is uh, last week we were talking Docker on Mac and you're like, you know what? It's not bad. So I don't see how the two connect still. Tell us, is it more about, so when you say focus, it, what what all does that mean? Well, one, you only need so many computers. Yeah. And they're I mean, expensive I, computers. Right. And I have like three Mac minis sitting in a closet somewhere. Yeah. It, it's, it's a little excessive. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, I tend to work on Ubuntu mostly for any, for anything that wasn't, you know, Apple, right. Or for some VPN reason needed to be Apple. Um, but for the VPN problem, you know what? You could almost certainly throw a, a VMware workstation on there and just install the Windows version, right? And then you do your VPN stuff on Windows and you're fine. Um, I do think that Docker works fine on Mac. I still think, and it's pretty much accepted that it works better on Linux. In fact, when you install the Docker app on Mac, it actually installs Alpine Linux under the hood. I love and it, it runs in that. Aww. So that's kind of how that works um that doesn't sound like a hack at all that doesn't sound hacky at all no it's actually pretty good alpine is very very small yeah oh yeah so if you didn't know you wouldn't know at all right like if i didn't say it i think most people who have it installed don't know it Hmm. what i'm finding is that i'm just simply more efficient now gnome has been curious (laughs) Um, so that was a little disappointing And, and you did ubuntu gnome right yeah, so yeah. it actually right now I'm on the Raytel, which actually just has like GNOME. Yeah, and this Ubuntu GNOME. Boring. No disrespect to the projects, I believe this is their intent. Is got to be the most boring, vanilla, straight up, nothing going on implementation of GNOME I've ever used. I mean, I don't and often I install GNOME on Debian. I was just going to say that I like it better. Really? I'm a lemur. I did the actual Ubuntu GNOME version of the distro from a clean install, and it just. Seems to be working a lot better. Good for you. Good. I'm glad you landed on something. That's nice. I'm I'm boring, right? I'm sitting in an IDE. Yeah, yeah. I'm sitting in. I'm, and I, I, you know, one right. of the things that Noah and I can't stop talking about because he's out at the studio right now, and one of the things we can't stop talking about is what a huge deal it is that Red Hat and SUSE and Canonical and a lot of others, including a bunch of people in the community are all working on GNOME right now. Everybody's everybody's attention, everybody's effort is going to be on GNOME. And there's another really big thing that's changing that could maybe see more contributions. I already am noticing a lot more people trying GNOME, a lot of more people talking about GNOME, asking me questions about GNOME, and a lot more articles about theming GNOME are coming out now. So there's already a lot more uh, uh, you know community energy and attention. But uh, I think one of the things that we, we could see sort of hopefully develop is now a real focus around Flatpak, which would be sort yeah. of a universal way to distribute applications. Uh, the Solus distribution, that's officially now how they're going to bring in third-party software, is you don't even don't even bother with the repos. We're just going to take Flatpaks. Uh, now every desktop running GNOME is going to have Flatpak support. So this could, be a, this could be a huge shift in how you deliver desktop software to Linux because you're going to know everybody has Flatpaks. So the other part of this is I'm pretty sure that desktop software is not going to matter. Well, yeah, there's that. There is that. Right. 
So, and the other thing is we had a conversation about a week ago about, or almost, oh no, because that was our weird two-week schedule thing. So probably three days ago, who knows, um, where I was starting to teeter on the whole native versus web thing. But then I had a couple meetings and reality hit me. No one's paying for native. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's true. And you don't need to. And the truth is, and in fact, not only is it not going to be native, but I would say that hybrid is the present. But we're eventually just going straight PWA, right? Straight progressive web apps. I mean, you still got to get the server side stuff installed. Uh, but everybody use well, sure, sure, sure. everybody use snap packages for that. <laughs> I'm talking about the client, right? Oh, you could use snap package, or just ship it as a container, Chris. Well, you're the, you're the, just, yeah. I'm just saying you can do your own version. Although you need too. a sane way to manage the software in the containers, there's still that. You do, or you could break it up into multiple containers. Mm-hmm. But we can, we can talk about yeah. that. all No, day that's long. a whole show. <laughs> that is a whole other show. <laughs> and then somebody who likes BSD will get in the chat room and start ranting and raving. So now is your intention once you sell all these Macs to like buy a Linux rig or are you just going to keep the money and uh... – um, I'm just going to keep the money. I mean I thought about selling the Lemur and looking at either a Galico or an XPS. That's a lot of work, right? I think I'm relatively happy. I'm happy with my Raytel. I wish I had a better keyboard on the Lemur but – so you think becoming a specialist in uh, in Docker and containerized applications, there's a real there, there's like a real business opportunity there. There's enough well, market it, demand around that and acceptance. Well, I would phrase it differently. Okay. Um, the thing you are the thing I am focusing on is modernizing legacy applications um, with DevOps practices, usually by using Docker, right? And reducing downtime and reducing uh, overhead and allowing faster shipments. So you have to remember, especially to like some of our younger folks in the audience, you guys are all in on like CodeShip and GitHub and all that kind of cool swanky stuff. Most enterprises are not. Mm. <laughs> some of them are like FTPing things up to the server still. Oh, yeah. And it takes like a week or two to do a staging deployment. So there is a huge uh, like return on on let's say they you know hire us for 100 hour engagement that's a huge roi just getting them into a um kind of continuous delivery situation a little more of a devops flow interesting that makes sense that's awesome yeah. well i uh, i'm i'm both surprised and impressed it seems like you've taken decisive action mr dominic you know it's funny because i've recently come to a conclusion that i actually think the macbook pro is a competitive device and i think the I think it's actually for what you get if you're using it as a editing machine, it is worth the money just after doing yeah, a little it's, recent it's, market evaluation. It's not a bad computer at all. It's just I can only do, in my opinion, one or two things at a time. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the that's the key. Like I look at it from uh, – Alton, Alton Brown has some wise words in his Good Eats program and it's definitely worth checking out on Netflix if you've never seen it before or just watch it again. And one of the things that Alton always says is try not to have a unitasker in your kitchen. And the MacBook mm. Pro is definitely a unitasker. Looking at it, 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 barely, it barely manages to outclass my 2013 pretty much fully specced out MacBook Pro except for when it comes to running Final Cut. And then it, then, then it's, it's like it's, it just devastates my MacBook Pro. Uh, and, and of course, that's what I would primarily use it for. 
But right. I would also be spending nearly three grand to get a machine that also isn't a very good gaming machine or can't really do VR, which is kind of disappointing because in the past, when you bought a computer that was fully spec'd out and capable of being like a high-end development machine or a high-end editing machine, it often did double duty as a great gaming machine too, which was a perk. But no, it, it can't really do that. And it, there's, it's just sort of all limited. So it's sort of disappointing. So I can understand – there's not a lot of value you can drive from it. If if you have a specific work task for it where it really excels at, and I think Final Cut could be one of them, uh, then I think then I think it's, it's probably worth the investment. But if you if you felt like it wasn't really up to the different various tasks, and it's not any more competitive than an Ubuntu machine, and I commend you for taking decisive action, sir. Yeah, it, it's so it's not that I don't think it can do the job, right? I just don't prefer it, and I don't need four computers. So it is a partly a preference thing. It, no, it, it is mostly a preference thing. I would say. Um, I just think that, well, I know that, right? I know that little weirdness with installing GNOME after the fact aside. <laughs> yeah, that I'm is sometimes more, a little clunky. I'm more efficient on this machine. Yeah, I noticed that about GNOME too. I feel Especially GNOME is... on the lemur, right? N- Mac OS shows its age. It's, it's what, 11 years old, and it, it really draws a lot <laughs> of its usage paradigm from either Next... Or from OS really, yeah, really, yeah. that's the primary. Yeah. And those are extremely old usage paradigms where uh, GNOME really was willing to just screw a lot of traditional convention. And GNOME 3.0 was rough. I mean, it was one of the reasons I think we got Unity <laughs> uh, and, 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 uh, and Mate. Uh, and so now, though, over time... They, they have really gotten it somewhere pretty great, and with the addition of a few extensions, I, it really is the best desktop environment I've used in my entire life, having been around since before we had GUIs, mainstream GUIs, to, uh, to what we're at now. I've never used a better UI. I've never worked better. Right. Yeah, and it's also really nice, especially for all this containerization stuff, to have the environment that I'm using for testing and development. Now, granted, I'm, I've become very VM happy hmm. because... You just, you know, you just, every client gets a VM. We should talk about that too someday. I know we got to go soon, but we should talk about that too. Like what, what, like what kind of tools are you using? What are you liking the best under Ubuntu, like VM and text editors? Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I mean, weirdly enough, Visual Studio Code has somehow not gotten deleted yet. It's that damn IntelliSense is so damn good. (laughs) I want to know all the things like virtualization. Just talk about all that. How your terminal setup. We could just do a whole setup episode one day. All tools. Okay. And it's me at (laughs) spin.com. What? What? No. What? Don't say that. That's my background. No, don't say that. Don't. People don't say that. Oh, my. Just stroke it a little bit. All right, Mr. Dominic. Oh, we have a tool of the week. Let's also, I'll quickly plug it uh, as we're going out the door. A classic Tomb Raider open source engine. Open Lara. It'll be linked in the show notes. That's pretty awesome. And guess what? It's got a WebGL demo. Oh, man. You sold me with the WebGL demo, Mr. Dominic. Where can people oh, find you it. throughout the week? Uh, you can find me at Dumanuko. Oh, and if you go to Buccaneer.io, we're actually doing a promo if you want to have a conversation about containerization and DevOps. Brilliant. So. Sounds like a great time to uh, take advantage of that, too. So check that out. You can also follow me. I'm at Chris LES, the network at Jupiter Signal, coderadio.reddit.com, and jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. For feedback, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you right back here next week.